Welcome to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. It's no secret that Asia is home to some of the most dynamic, innovative, and game-changing companies in the world. Join us as we survey the land to find the most profitable investment opportunities that will allow you to capitalize off this next wave of wealth creation. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced with the goal of providing actionable insights with every single episode. And now, on to the show. Today's show guest is Chris Meredith. Chris is the Director of Research, Co-Chief Investment Officer, and Portfolio Manager at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. O'Shaughnessy Asset Management is a quantitative money management firm based out of Stamford, Connecticut. Chris is responsible for managing investment-related activities, including investment strategy research, portfolio management, and the firm's trading efforts. Today, we give our audience a brief primer on quantitative and factor-based investing. This is an area that has been picking up in popularity recently not only amongst institutional and high net worth individuals, but also amongst retail investors. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. We're very, very excited to have you on. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And I'm looking forward to discussing discussing everything about O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. Absolutely. Uh, So for the audience uh, listening in, perhaps you could give a quick background introduction of yourself. Who's Chris Meredith and what do you do for a living? Sure. So I am the director of research at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. We manage about $6 billion through quantitative equities. Uh, My background is one where uh, I was actually a quantitative firm, but I have an English undergrad degree from Colgate University, but uh, wound up getting a master's in business MBA from Cornell University, where I really started getting into investing Mm -hmm. uh, with a master's in financial mathematics from Columbia, as well as a CFA, just to get broad academic background. And I actually am now a, also a visiting lecturer back at Cornell, where I teach an applied portfolio management class. Wow. That's a combination of quantitative and fundamental investing. I see. Wow. Uh, so yeah, it's it's interesting to me because uh, you know I, I I'm certainly not as uh, educated as you are, but I, I know that in when it comes to investing, you know, I mean, the markets are abundant, and there's many ways to make money in the market, uh, and a lot of people choose a lot of different strategies to uh, pursue. So was it just a, because of your sort of mathematics and just your personality, is that what led you down this sort of quant path? <laughs> so the quant path for me was, uh, it was an interesting one, right? So it's, uh, I went to the MBA program really to, to learn more about investing. Uh, and the program was set up where obviously they build up a lot of the fundamentals of learning about finance, accounting, et cetera. And then it came time to start picking stocks. And, and what I noticed was it, it felt really subjective to me. It mm. felt one where I was looking at an individual name, doing your DCF models. You could do growth rates and, and discount rates and could really move the prices around a lot with it. I started building, trying to build more systematized ways to get to uh, investment ideas. And this actually is just my background is one in technology where I'd always been good with computers. Before I even went to Cornell, I had been looking at you know ways to download information from Yahoo and build my own data mm. sets on trying to understand what was going on with really bad quantitative investing at that point, but, uh, but analyst estimates and looking at, you know, information and the way that I think, and this is the way that quantitative investors think that the investing process is essentially you try to use the same fundamental concepts that would be used within a financial statement analysis and doing, you know, your full one stock pitch, but taking that and trying to do it where it's codified across an entire universe of stocks. Mm. So the part for us is, there's an or part about getting data, which is similar to a fundamental process, right? If you think about a 
you on the sell side dialing in. You've got all your reports, you put on your headset, you start making phone <laughs> calls to the IR group, those pieces where you're going through and you're building out spreadsheets and models. We try to do it by getting large data sets where we're saying all 3,000 companies at once, here's my balance sheets and income statements, here are the ratios between those, and here are the returns that then you can investigate historically how these, these strategies have done over time. I would say that the, there's a lot more similarities between quantitative investing and fundamental investing than people know. And I think the number one reason is because there's not enough education around how quantitative strategies work. Right. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I myself am a, an investor, a full-time investor at a hedge fund, and uh, we are very sort of fundamental, long-short equity, uh, but, you know, very bottom-up, fundamental, you know, biased. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's even being a full-time investor and having done it my entire career, when I talk about quantitative trading and strategies, it's, it's kind of this sort of dark area where I'm kind of like, oh, I don't know, I don't know much about it and I'm scared. But having said that, I know that if you look, um, and I've read a, a few things, I don't, I, I don't, can't remember where I've read this, but um, and it, and it wasn't academic journal, so uh, it might've just been news, uh, buzzy news, but saying that market participation in the last, say five to 10 years uh, has shifted uh, and there's a lot more quant quants and algos and higher frequency trading as participants as opposed to fundamental guys, right? And so right. Uh, the, the sort of lens that I was reading it from was it's a lot harder for fundamental guys to make money now in the market. Um, that was my takeaway from whatever I was reading. But um, so uh, I want to, you, you, you bring up an interesting point with your background saying how um, you know, fundamental investing is, there is a lot, lot of subject, subjectivity to it. Um, right. I mean, it's basically based on you building a model, your assumptions versus the street, how you're going to differentiate yourself. And then you take advantage of sort of the quarterly events and data points um, to structure your uh, trades around. Um, now, there is, uh, I guess, the intrinsic uh, least common denominator, lowest common denominator there is it's the human element of it. So, right. um, you know, and, and this goes from the retail investor all the way up to the uh, hedge fund manager with, um, you know, like uh, the, the most successful hedge fund managers in the world. Um, there's always still a human element. And so when you, if you take a look at it from an institutional investor standpoint, like a, like a pension fund or something, at the end of the day, you're still betting on that jockey when you're talking about like a, a long short type, type shop. So you're still at risk if he has a divorce or he's going through a drug problem or something like that. I right. mean, that's, that's, a, that's a risk, right? And so to me, it seems like uh, quantitative trading and strategies kind of eliminate that. And so I want to ask what your view is on um, sort of investing in general. Why are human beings uh, so bad at investing? Uh, and which has basically spawned this entire quant uh, strategy uh, subset. Yeah, so the part you're, you're hitting on is, is, is a key part of what's going on inside of the industry. Factor investing, quantitative investing has become a lot more popular. Um, part of this is just the expansion of the number of ideas you've talked about, right? Where it's been, you mentioned a few things in there. One, like the high frequency trading, which is much more of a, you know, looking for 
there's a handful of strategies in there of way people trading off of news or you know trying to sit there and evaluate market microstructure and ways to look if one in market has a different price than another market. There's another group that is basically like the quant hedge funds mm-hmm. that are working on a quarter to quarter basis and trying to get ahead of earnings or trying to gather get informational edge, like edge of getting information before other people by looking at purchasing credit card data before the quarter end, right? Mm-hmm. To understand where people are spending their money. Looking at, you know, there's going to be more and more of an explosion around this, around satellite data, around, um, you know, location data, et cetera. But there's also this portion about more longer term investment factors, which is where we reside, right? Your listeners have, have heard about where there's ideas of like low volatility strategies, value strategies, mm-hmm. momentum strategies, and those types of investment ideas. And so the part about the popularity of those, right, in particular, and those have gathered a lot of interest from people. And I think part of this is that there's, there's a couple of benefits to it. One is, as you said, right, the, the fundamental process is um, one that's typically a lot harder to describe, right, if you talk about a potential client or a client of yours and you walk in and you talk about your investment process, you'll talk about how you look at companies, you'll talk about your process for your theory for, you know, things like quality versus value, but there's no systematized overall arch of saying, you know, here's how the the one thing that we're looking for in, in, in a company, right? Whereas you get more clarity on that with what happens inside of a quantitative strategy. You get, get a little bit more of, I understand that this portfolio will be built around this theme and it will all the stocks in it will exhibit those characteristics and you can understand how it's being constructed around it, right? Now there's that clarity for it, right? Of how it's being constructed gives more, let's say, usefulness to the investor who's trying to build an allocation. Some will view it as a completion part of their portfolio where they'll say, you know what, this is something I'm missing. I have a good fundamental growth manager, but I don't have momentum or value or low vol, and I can use that as a low vol as a, you say, defensive equity part of my portfolio. Some people are looking at it as a replacement part, right? Where they're saying, I'm going to take my value strategies and, and replace another fundamental manager because the plain part is that, you know, fundamental active management has struggled for mm-hmm. the last several years. Um, there's a part of, if you look at things like the, the SPIVA, SPIVA report from S&P of index versus active, you can see that the number of times in the universe where over a trailing five-year period where the index has beaten the manager is about 80, 82% over the last five years, right? It's not a really good indication of how the industry is doing. <laughs> so the, the part for this is people are looking at this and saying, my traditional fundamental management has not been doing well. Mm-hmm. They're going through and they're, they're basically saying, I think factors can help me on this. A quantitative approach can help me on this. And I do think one thing that comes with it, and this is the key aspect for anybody that I would talk to you about investing, is also the discipline that comes with it. The number one thing we have learned as an investment shop is that discipline wins in markets. The idea is that you have investment styles and you separate out the part of your investment process versus your investment results because there are good times for good processes like value investing, which has struggled essentially over over the last 10 years. Um, And there's reasons that we think that that has happened, but it doesn't mean that value investing is broken. It just means that there has been headwinds on on how value investing has worked within the market. Interesting. So... uh... So let's take an even further step back for some of the audience that might not even be well-versed in, in what factor investing or what factors actually are. Maybe you could give us just a, a handful of examples that what are the different factors that you look at that you right. use to base your, your models on? So we have a, a, about, you can boil it down to six main themes that we look at inside of our, our, our portfolio. 
and they each have different ways about looking at stocks. Valuation is one I talked about, right? The idea is that you want to pay as little as possible for a company. Think of the company as generating economic benefit through earnings, cash flow, and you look and say, if I can get the same dollar of cash flow for $5 instead of $10, why wouldn't I buy it at $5, mm -hmm. right? Uh, there's momentum, which is looking at trends in the marketplace and stocks that have done well over the last three, six, nine months continue to do well over the next 12 months. Uh, this can also be come through on the individual, like you said, bottom up stock picking. Mm -hmm. uh, it can come through general trends in the marketplace of saying like energy is an area that's been beat up in the market, potentially, you know, some, some risk or downside attached to that area um, versus, you know, potential upside from areas like biotech internet stocks, et cetera, that can come through within momentum. We also look at yield and the total return of capital through share repurchases as well as dividends. And we've done a lot of research on share repurchases. I would highly recommend going to ostam.com and looking at our commentaries if you have more interest in that, that theme. Um, we've explored it a lot. Um, there's also quality themes we use to remove stocks. And this is something that for, from our point, we think is a little bit unique where we say there are stocks you just should not own. Uh, there are stocks based on things like financial strength of the balance sheet, uh, looking at the leverage of the balance sheet, as well as the direction it's headed in, um, and basically penalizing and removing companies that have are financing themselves through external sources versus their own cash flow from operations. Uh, we look at earnings growth, where you've seen a decline in earnings over the last quarter and the last year, and they're unlikely to turn it around. And we look at the quality of earnings, which is accounting. Essentially, uh, you're getting in under the hood to see if there's companies that might be boosting their earnings by moving things within their balance sheet, dipping into inventory, receivables to possibly be boosting revenue, and looking for imbalances to identify companies that are manipulating earnings. Now, these themes, the way that we build them, sound very fundamental, right? They sound a lot like what you would have for anybody out there who's doing a full fundamental analysis of a company. Right. What we do is that we take these and we look over long historical cycles. So within Asia, we're able to look back to the late 1980s and say these themes within various markets, how have they done and played out over time? We're also able to take those ideas and themes and look at it not just in Asia, but also within the US, within Canada, within emerging markets. And what we've seen is that these are robust ideas that are based on, um, some would say risk, some would say mispricings in the marketplace. But mm -hmm. what we have seen is that they are factors that are able to separate out stocks that have excess returns from those that will underperform in the market. Right. You know, so one of the one of the quant type terms that you hear about and you read about a lot, but a lot of people don't know about is this term called smart beta. Right. And uh, so maybe you could give us, again, a one on one on what's what is smart beta. And I know that at O'Shaughnessy, you guys, uh, you guys actually have another strategy that sort of differentiates yourself from the traditional smart beta, right? Correct. Yeah. The way the way that smart beta works, right, is. The whole idea is that this idea of how, how you get rewarded in the marketplace for um, positioning your portfolio in a certain way. And the story was originally the old beta was market risk. You know, the idea is the stock market goes up, does your beta of stock, if it goes up more, it's got a beta of like 1.1, if it goes up less, and then it has a beta of 0.9. Those are numbers, obviously, that are approximations, but the idea is beta of one means the market goes up, you go up, the market goes down, you go down. And the idea was that was your, your exposure. That was what was explaining the returns of your stocks. Research was done and found that market beta is actually not the best way to explain returns out there. And that's where there was whole academic research of saying there are other exposures, which is how beta is a term that comes from the regression, right? Of within that, what's your exposure to a certain factor? Right. 
And that's where smart beta came through. Dumb beta was old market beta. Smart <laughs> beta is value. It is you know, size. It is momentum. These other ones that are out there. And that's where the term smart beta comes from. The idea that there can be systematic factor investing styles that will give you more exposure and better ways to position your portfolio. Now, from our point of view, what we've seen from the industry is the, the smart beta solutions that are out there fundamentally have a certain investment solution, which is they are giving broad exposure to the marketplace and then applying some small tilts to it. Mm -hmm. The idea would be either through a factor, a weighting of like revenue or earnings, which is highly correlated with market cap weighting. It's just a modest difference where I believe earnings weighted versus, uh, versus market cap weighting has a correlation of like 0.82, right? So it's highly correlated when the overall weights come out. Smart beta, there's other people that do approaches where they say, I'm just going to buy the market and I'm going to trim the tails and say that I'm just going to, if I have my conviction on what I know for value signals, I will sell 10% of my portfolio as in sell from a market weight, go down to zero weight, and I'll double down on the top 10%. Right. But 80% of my overall portfolio will wind up being market, essentially, it will be the overall passive market, which is similar to what you could get from a VOO, like five basis points out there. But you know, I'm going to add a little bit of edge based on those, those tails. Our approach is one we call factor alpha. And factor alpha is the idea of we're looking to generate excess returns, which means we offer a portfolio that is more concentrated, more focused on those names that have the absolute best characteristics out there. Because our belief is that if you have information that says that this group of stocks is going to have the potential to outperform by 4%, and this group has the potential to underperform by 4%, and the rest of the stocks out there you don't have a lot of conviction on, the smart beta approach is, sell the 10%, buy yeah. the 10%, and take the 80% at the market weight. And our opinion is, if I have a group of stocks that I think is going to outperform 4%, why wouldn't I put all my money in that? Right. And that for us is the theory of where we have a very differentiated approach on, we think we have a differentiated approach on how, on several steps. One is identifying the characteristics, but the most tangible, obvious way is that we build small, concentrated portfolios for a select group of clients through our, through our boutique business. That's very interesting. So is the... You guys uh, cater to both institutional and uh, sort of private high net worth type individuals. Is that right? Yes, we do. Okay. Um, so this is interesting to me as well. So um, when you think about quantitative trading, you think that, oh, that's only for the big players, the big institutions. How can a regular guy like me, a uh, high net worth guy maybe, how could I have exposure to that? You know, I mean, the cost associated must be, these are all sort of preconceived notions that you have when it comes to this sort of thing. So for, uh, say, a, you know, an individual guy, uh, maybe a high net worth client, they come to O'Shaughnessy Asset Management and they say, look, um, I want to allocate some of my, uh, my pension or f retirement uh, money uh, into some of, some of these strategies, say a factor alpha. So, yeah. or maybe not factor alpha, or just they, they come to you. What's the process? Do you guys walk them through... Uh, just a tailored approach or is it sort of here are what we offer here are our offerings we can put you into these allocations and you're off to the races yeah so we have we have a series of ways that we can we can deliver our ideas to clients um, we do offer separately managed accounts for institutions and high net worth typically through financial advisors or registered investment advisors um, and it's one where you know, our strategies are, are ones that we believe we have high conviction in. So we'll have one like our large cap value strategy, which is named market leaders value. 
uh, it's a strategy that essentially goes through looking at the large stocks universe, which is market cap about seven point five billion and higher, mm-hmm. um, and going through it leaves you with about five hundred companies to look from. We eliminate the worst of the companies based on those themes that we talked about, saying yeah, these are stocks that are essentially over levered. They look like they might be boosting their earnings. They've seen a drop in their earnings over the last you know the last twelve months. Um, they're or they're overpriced and have been penalized in the marketplace. Those get just ripped out of the universe. We don't want to focus on those. We focus on that shareholder yield metric, that total return of capital within the large stocks universe, where these are healthy companies that are saying we have reinvested in our business. Um, we have excess capital, and our best thing that we can do is repurchase our stock because it is so attractively valued right now. Right. And that's one where it'll come through in a portfolio that we rebalance on a frequent monthly basis, looking for the opportunity. So more more um, responsive than, say, a passive index, mm-hmm. which might rebalance twice a year or once a year, and look to get into these characteristics and take advantage of moving into the market as it's, as it's shifting under, uh, as the characteristics shift. Um, so we have separately managed accounts. We also have mutual funds mm-hmm. for clients out there. Uh, the, that market leader's value strategy is available through OFVIX. And this is one where there's a smaller minimum attached to that. Um, we don't have an ETF family that's out there. Um, we were talking about that internally and debating about it. There is some benefits to the structure, you know, but overall we believe in our strategies and, and we think we have plenty of avenues for people to come and, and invest in a, invest with us. So one of the sort of uh, individual, well, investor in general biases obviously is uh, home country bias. And I think that a lot of, uh, and, that, and that's, that's something that's not, you know, I'm American and uh, it's not just something specific to the States. You know, I mean, people right. here in Hong Kong, they just like to trade their Hong Kong shares and, and China, you know, they don't like to look outside of their comfort zone. Right. Uh, but having said that, you know, the, obviously the U.S. equity markets uh, in particular are extremely over, overvalued by a number of metrics, almost every metric that you look out there. And um, so there's, there's sort of this need for, to relieve some of this pressure. You know, I mean, a lot of people are, are saying that uh, we're looking very toppish now. People are wondering what to do, potentially looking to rotate uh, some of their money out, take some chips off the table and look at some other markets such as Asia. Um, and I know that you guys have a couple international products. Um, do you guys look at Asia specifically, or you just kind of encompass it in some of your international uh, strategies? We have we have international strategies where we look in, in total, and it's essentially um, looking at EFA markets. Uh, we have one global that's looking comprehensively at the whole world. Uh, the EFA markets for us, you know, obviously it's Asia, Japan, Australia, and as well as Europe, uh, developed Europe. Um, we have one international ADR strategy. So for U.S. investors um, or even other investors who have difficulty getting to local markets, right? So international investing, there are challenges that can possibly lead to that home bias, right? So for a U.S. investor to go and get access to buy local shares in, in Asia, um, there has to be subcustodial relationships, all these other issues that come through it. So ADRs do offer a way for individuals to get access, particularly in the U.S. market across a number of geographies. Um, and that's a strategy for us, again, that uses those themes that we've talked about and just applies it solely to the EDR market. We do have, for institutional clients, essentially, uh, an international strategy that is focused on developed EVA. Uh, and that is one that essentially, you know, goes to the ordinary markets and, and, and works within, within each of those. Um, so we have multiple ways of, for clients, both on the retail and the institutional side, to access us through international 
Is, do you find that there are challenges when you are uh, determining the factors uh, for international markets? I mean, just from the top of my head, I, I can tell you from firsthand experience that many of the Asian companies do not trade on fundamentals. <laughs> and so it's been extremely challenging for us, uh, what I do. Uh, but I mean, that obviously filters down into the factor level when you're incorporating that into your strategy. So do you have, a, a, I mean, does, does that take a dedicated sort of team to build that sort of model out? So our team is general structure. We have everybody working on, uh, nobody dedicated to international versus domestic, right? Mm. Um, but for us, we've definitely dug in and understood some of the intricacies of, inter of international investing, right? You're looking at different accounting standards uh, for different ways to represent, Japanese GAAP, local standards, IFRS. Uh, and one of the challenges is for us, because we are building a systematized process, mm -hmm. is taking a look and saying, how do I build a process that's going to look across all these different standards and all these different geographies and make sure that I'm getting the same concept and I'm not creating a bias towards one market or another based on something as simple as how R&D expenses are, are essentially calculated within within income statement, right? Or balance sheet. Um, there's also the challenges of FX. Right. FX will move around. There's a lot of questions on, you know, looking at the, the impact of FX, particularly think about something like momentum investing where the price basically goes up if you're looking at it in USD. Um, and it's one where you'll capture in the effect of what's happening with, say, the Hong Kong dollar. Uh, but if you're looking at it only within the local market, you can see how the currency can have huge effect on exporters versus importers, right? So there's ways that you have to go through and adjust for these items. Uh, but this is the part about quantitative investing, which is that we look at the data. We test all of these ideas out. And the idea of, um, yeah, there's different markets that have different challenges. But the themes we have talked about, the really interesting part about it is that if you're looking at that, you can identify concepts that have worked across all markets based on these mispricings from people or, as some would say, a risk that is inside the market that you can capture and generate excess returns. Right. Let's take value, value investing for an example. Uh, you know, the whole premise of it is finding intrinsic value of a company and then figuring out, uh, maybe adding in a margin of safety and then figuring out where your entry point is and then taking advantage of market dislocation. But that's all based off of your own conviction level that you have to build based on your analysis and your start sifting through data and, and you have to you have to bear that yourself. So when the market corrects or draws down and there's a huge you know dislocation, at the end of the day you're still battling against yourself because you're second guessing, okay, is are my numbers correct? It, what's going on here, right? So I feel like um, that battle probably is still there, but I would feel a lot better if I had 30 years of back-tested data behind it or whatever, you know what I mean? I'm, so, not, I'm, not, I'm not as young as I used to be, you know, but it still is very, con it's comforting to have 85 years of data where you can look right. back test ideas over across different geographies and different parts. But you have it exactly right. So you asked at the beginning of quantitative investing and, and the struggle of, of, of investors, essentially, and, and how my, my response was around the discipline of it. Mm -hmm. And I said how, you know, at O'Shaughnessy, one of the key aspects is uh, obviously factor alpha, building those concentrated portfolios that give you a better chance to outperform. But it's also about never, ever leaving your strategy. Right. The idea is that if you're going to be a value investor, you keep to your strategy. This is the research originally done by Jim O'Shaughnessy in his, his Invest Like the Best book, where he said he thought originally, you know, the best managers are going to be people that see trends and they move back and forth between different styles. 
what he found was that the best managers out there are the ones that build a discipline and then keep to it. Right. Now, that discipline, though, has to be also be borne by the investors, right? They have to have it where they continue to hire the manager, even if there's a short-term period of underperformance or even a, a moderate period of underperformance. What's interesting about ETFs and factors is that the ETF market, what people are doing is they're, they're tending to use them a bit more tactically. They're trying to jump in and out, out of trades. <laughs> and that, that lower barrier, that lower cost of switching is perhaps reducing any sort of structural barrier on cost that people would have of going back and forth between these. And what you can see is things like low vol investing last year, which had taken an enormous amount of assets because low volatility as an asset class, right? Just to talk a little bit about it as a strategy. Low volatility historically has not generated excess returns more than you know a modest amount, maybe 50 basis points, 100 basis points, buying the absolute best names out there through our approach. So it's not something like you know yield or value, which we have generated 400 basis points of excess return off of. What it does do is offer you lower volatility. It's a defensive equity category. Mm-hmm. So if you're thinking about bonds versus equities, but you think that you want to have something kind of in the middle where it's more of a defensive equity, low ball is a good situation for you, right? right? But after two years of outperformance where low ball happened to have a good run, where it outperformed 500 basis points a year, the flows into low ball were enormous. And that's because people looked at a short two-year period and they said, this looks really attractive to me now because I can get outperformance and I can get lower volatility with it. And so the the assets flew into the ETFs like very, very strongly. Third quarter, low volatility underperformed. The assets then, after the underperformance, flowed out, right? Value picked up in the fourth quarter, flowed, assets flowed into it, right? And what's happening is people are chasing performance through ETFs. And my part of this is for factor investors anywhere, for any investors anywhere, which is build a discipline allocation to your investment managers and your investment styles, as well as your factors and give them time to play out over longer market cycles, five years plus. And that for me is about having the discipline on the investor side that we have because we've done the research on the factors and we believe in them, but then we need to have that in basically to keep with your manager through thick and thin. That's uh, yeah, it's, that's absolutely right. And I feel like uh, the institutional investors that invest in Asia are even more finicky I mean, they'll, <laughs> they'll come in and out and fire you and hire you within 18 months, you know, oh, Asia's hot again. And so all of a sudden you'll see all the fun flows coming back in. And yep. these are the guys that, that fired you 18 months ago because uh, everyone was spooked or because or, the renminbi devalued or something like that. Right. Um, but I, I absolutely agree with, um, with what you said about discipline. I think, you know, on, on every level, I mean, even at the highest levels, you see guys that um, you know, very, very successful fund managers like, um, say, like a David Einhorn, for example, you know, brilliant manager, huge, long track record. And then he started doing some stuff outside of his, his, uh, his process, regular process. And he's, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he's going to be fine in the long run. But it, it's, as you said, if you don't have that discipline, even 20 years, 30 years track record in, you veer yeah. off the path and, and that's what's going to happen. Um, What's interesting is that same S&P index versus active report that I said where 82% of managers Mm -hmm. underperform. They they have in there a style consistency across managers. And over a 10-year basis, basically, the style consistency is less, is about half. So they've (laughs) gone through and said, you know, how how much managers have switched around within their own process versus, you know, value versus growth, et cetera. And you hear this all the time. Like, 
I, I was loving it where Bloom, uh, Bloomberg Radio, you hear, you know, basically a, somebody manager talking about their process. They're a deep value investor, you know, and, and they, they demand dividend yield out of it. And this was like five years ago. And they said, well, you know, and they, and they started talking about, well, you just, I guess you don't own Apple. And they were like, no, no, I, I love Apple. You know, they're going to eventually pay a dividend. So I'm going to put it in there. <laughs> Uh, or Amazon getting into the yeah. value portfolio and they're saying, just, I believe in the company, right? And there's times where people will, they'll bend their process. Yeah. yeah. Income managers, you know, when they're searching for yield, will go to, sometimes they'll take 10 to 15% of their portfolio and put in high dividend paying stocks. <laughs> yeah. you know, these things happen in this industry. So you've got to understand what's inside of the portfolios that, that you're looking at. Absolutely. Um, Chris, thank you so much for the time and for sharing your insights. Uh, it, was, it was actually very uh, educational for myself and I'm sure for a vast majority of the audience. Um, what, uh, what, are there any uh, exciting things that you guys are working on right now, either personally or at O'Shaughnessy that, um, you know, that you would like to share with the audience? We're always continuing to look for, for ways to educate clients. Uh, we're doing more thought leadership. I would say the commentaries that we've been putting out, uh, we've been getting good reception on those. And, and this idea, of, as it used to be 10 years ago, we would have to go around explaining what factor investing was. We still have to do some of that. Now it's the whole marketplace is basically saying that they've embraced this idea. And there's multiple ideas out there. Mm-hmm. The part for us is, is trying to educate clients on the benefits of our approach, the factor alpha approach of having concentrated portfolios looking at characteristics versus the broader uh, way of, of basically implementing where it's a more risk-controlled fo- focus mm. versus ours that is a return-focused portfolio. And that for us is, is really what we've been spending a lot of time is trying to educate clients and prospects on it. Um, and check out our, our website and our commentary that's out there. Yeah, I, you, you have some good, uh, some good literature out there. Um, so uh, last question is where can people find you, follow you, connect with you and, uh, you know, learn more, more about you yourself personally or, or O'Shaughnessy? So O'Shaughnessy, we have a, our obviously osam.com. Uh, I have a personal blog out there, cuttingthroughnoise.com, okay, uh, which great. is one that has just got a couple of insights. There's some overlap between those two, but it's nice. got some, some, some more market ideas that I'm looking at besides just what's, what's going on with OSAM. Fantastic. Thanks again, Chris. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Jay. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All of the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next exciting episode of The Jay Kim Show. As always, I'd love to hear your questions, comments, or future guest suggestions. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer. That's J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you in the next episode.